Welcome to Places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. Today's episode is an interview with the very talented team at Classics, an organization devoted to studying classic black theater and to providing colleges, theater companies, publishers, and readers with the resources to explore the expansive work of classic black playwrights. Each member of the team brought a great deal of scholarship and insight to the conversation. This episode is my first experience doing a group interview, and I found it fascinating to hear the array of responses from a team whose talents include directing, producing, dramaturgy, and acting. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And if you hear the name of a writer you're not familiar with, I hope you'll see it as an opportunity to look into their work. Here's my interview with Awoye Tempo, Dominique Ryder, Brittany Bradford, Arminda Thomas, and AJ Mohammed, the team at Classics. Welcome to everyone at Classics. It is a true delight to talk to you, and I'm so thrilled to hear your perspectives on this new but flourishing company. I want to welcome to this episode Awoye Timpo, director and producer, Arminda Thomas, dramaturg, archivist, and musician, Brittany Bradford, actor, director, producer, and teaching artist, Dominique Ryder, director and dramaturg, and AJ Mohammed, dra- dramaturg and researcher. And as an aside, I haven't been with this many dramaturgs since my last theory class in my MFA. <laughs> so <laughs> this is awesome. Okay. Awoye, you founded the company in 2017 and brought together this team by determining the different areas of expertise that each member would bring. Um, yesterday, when we had a quick check-in, you said it's a bit like a heist movie where you assemble your A-team. So you guys are apparently Ocean's Eleven of theater. <laughs> what variety of skills were you seeking? Yeah. <laughs> um, that did happen yesterday. I was saying uh, we were just talking about what it meant to like build a build a team and kind of like put together a, kind of like a, a, a staff. And I was like, oh, in a way, it, it worked out way more kind of like a, a great heist movie. You kind of say, oh, these are the experts and these are the amazing skills that each of those experts have. And then you kind of put them together in, in, in service of some kind of great grand lofty and beautiful dream and so that that's that's kind of that's kind of what we what we've got it was um it was in a way actually less about kind of looking at the specific skills that we would need in order to do the work that we wanted to do but more about just bringing together like the best most badass group of people um that you just want to think with all the time um and putting those people into the room and building from there so that's 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 i think that's how we got our our crew our classics crew Because so many of you have these, well, all of you have these multi-hyphenate professions, it seems like there's the practical part, producing, acting, directing, and then to have dramaturg or archiving lends itself to, to, to thinking about history and context and scholarship and research. Dominique, can you tell me how that weaves into this kind of pursuit, having that wide lens constantly? 
Yeah, I think for me, at least, they come together because I don't understand art without thought, right? That like any art that I'm engaging with, there needs to be a critical theory that is like doing, like that is underneath it, underpinning and, and tying it together. And so for me, I think that when I think about like the work that classics is, is doing, there is this sort of like, there is a move to understand, right? The, the greater art that's happening. There's a move to understand and categorize um, black art as it continues to change and grow and mutate. But at the same time, there needs to be an understanding of like, well, what did this art come out of? What caused this art to emerge, right? Because it's not just a random <laughs> sort of happenstance of like these things happen. What are like national temperatures? What are like the macro temperatures that are really um, honing in and helping to create the moments of black art that we see? And so I think that like the, those sort of things, both of those things for me at least go hand in hand. One um, sneak preview that Awoye gave to me is the podcast that you have in store, which will be a really thorough deep dive into different eras and themes in the history of Black theater artists. I hope it's okay to share. The, the first one will be on the topic of minstrelsy and will include four episodes of history one episode excerpts from a play or plays, and one episode discussions with artists. I'm really impressed by how in-depth this sounds and the ability to get a real 360 around a topic. Because it's the first topic for your, for your first foray into this podcast, both because of the time period when minstrelsy happened and the ability to go to really look back in the history of Black theater artists in America, but also because of the topic that it kind of cracks open in this general study, I'd like to begin with this idea. What I find so interesting about the topic of minstrelsy, despite how painful a subject matter it is, is that it brings to light the tension between the art and the audience receiving it. There's a, an emotional disconnect between a performer like Burt Williams putting blackface on his black skin, portraying a black character with pathos, and a white audience laughing at the caricature that they perceive. There's this like a profound uh, cognitive dissonance happening there. So it seemed to me an interesting starting place to sort of think about bigger ideas because the disconnect between the art and the audience is not something that we checked off when we stopped doing minstrelsy. When you think about Black theater artists over the past century, how do you think about the evolution of art to audience, that relationship, as you have creations of Black theaters and as you have continued presence of Black artists in majority white theaters? We've seen that you know, over the course of a century, we still have some of the same tensions that, that arose in the 19th century, also arising in the 20th century, where like there are times when, because there's a disconnect between Black artists and, and, and white audience members, there's a disconnect. So, so black, black performers could be performing minstrelsy, but at the same time, the white audience is, um, is taking away something completely different than a Black audience would. Uh, we're still asking ourselves the question of when artists perform, who is consuming it? What's happening during that process? So, so you have, so we're looking at white um, audience members consuming 
art done by black people. Um, and then we also have black artists, black audience members consuming art created by black people as well. So we're still looking at this question because I don't think there, there really is an, um, an easy answer to that question. I think it's a great, when you say cognitive dissonance, I think it's a great term to use for that explanation because you know, that sense of the audience and the performers and the, the dynamic between the two is something that I've definitely felt now as an artist, the, the dissonance between that of who am I performing for and are those people taking in what is happening in some way it gets released from me once it's out of my body and, and it gets interpreted in, in a myriad of ways that I don't have control over. And it's hard to think about, well, then what material am I choosing? What characters am I, am I portraying? Am I doing something that could be um, misconstrued in some way, right? And when looking at minstrelsy, it's been really interesting because those feelings that I've had and maybe have felt isolated about as an artist in the 21st century are the same things that we're seeing from artists then. That sense of cognitive dissonance, I think, is a part of the makeup of being a, a Black artist. It, it just is a part of the makeup. And so what's been great about examining minstrelsy is how we've really been approaching the podcast is it's not a history lesson in so much as it is a, a question of, of journey. And it's what am I thinking about? What am I learning about? And what do I feel about this topic with this information now? Centering the perspective of the Black artists. And by having a conversation with that journey, I think it helps in the present moment, then have a conversation about how we handle the cognitive dissonance or the multiple truths that are in play. And just being able to have a conversation about that and being able to have agency in it, I think is, is what I'm recognizing in this whole process. And it's been um, very eye-opening in that way. I also think another thing that's so important about it um, from a perspective of someone who's not a pro is that it also shows me how plays get remembered sometimes with the wrong intentions, right? Like I, I think a lot about how, thinking about plays like Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress or Wedding Man, right? What black plays are able to make it into sort of like a white consciousness if that's who these plays are being performed for, even if that's not like an intended audience, right? And what that does quite literally to the legacy of these plays and which ones get remembered and even in the remembering of them, I'm thinking about like Dutchman by Mary Baraka, which ones are remembered, but maybe remembered incorrectly, I think is also a great sort of point of thing. It's a, it's a thing that's happening for me in this process too. There's a certain level of growth necessary for the white audience to come in to see a black play that's not written for them and to be part of the experience and hear the laughter at certain times and acknowledge what the, if it's a majority black audience, it's at a black theater, for example, or a black theater festival, to be aware of what garners the most, the most pathos and humor and shared experience and what they are receiving as an audience member who's not as knowledgeable about it. And so versus a theater that gets a more mainstream, say Broadway theater, that is now having a black playwright come in and if the audience is now minority Black, they're hearing the laughter and what garners the most pathos and the most shared experience. And it might be different and it might not be. So it's a very complicated thing because there's this strange experience I can imagine for the actors on stage when the laugh happens at the wrong time. It just reminds me of a, of a Chappelle, of a Dave Chappelle sketch, um, a stand-up, where he chastised the audience for laughing too much at the wrong thing. What are your thoughts about that? 
this is Brittany. It's, it's important, I think, for white audiences to figure out a new way to be a participant in the theater, particularly if it is a Black story that is being told. I remember going to Roundabout and seeing, oh gosh, Tony Stone with, with April, and there were parts of it where I could tell, and you can tell, you can feel this. It is an energetic thing, but it is absolutely true. You can feel when an audience is laughing out of uncomfortability or laughing out of an acknowledgement of being seen or laughing out of thinking that that thing is real or is true. And there's a part at the end of the first act that felt a little like um, uh, uh, really calling attention to minstrelsy or a white gaze on a black audience, uh, on a black person. And I, the audience that I was in, I could feel that the white audience that was there was responding to it, not understanding what was actually being sent up. And it was uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable as a black person in that audience to feel that. And yet what it made me think of is like, okay, well, when I'm going to a show that is predominantly uh, an experience on stage that I'm not familiar with, how am I listening? And for me, I'm so used to that that I'm very used to being like, okay, I don't understand quite all of these experiences, but I, I feel um, like that's okay. I'm just going to be here and be present and listen in a different way and also take the time afterwards to even learn more about that. It's a different way of listening. And I think it really, I hope that wide audiences can learn to listen differently and learn to, to, to be present in a different way. I agree with you, Brittany. I think that to be in the audience and be slightly less comfortable is a good thing. And like in the sense that when we come to see art, we don't know what, what the art will be. And it's a, it's a better for the form if you come in and you get something that puts you off balance slightly and maybe opens you to something new. And I just wanted to say, Alani, um, when kind of connecting what Dominique and Brittany were both saying as well, Dominique was mentioning this idea of like how how it is that kind of the cultural consciousness that um, has come to like learn about a play like Dutchman, for example. There is this kind of like psychological, like a larger cultural framing um, that is a kind of psychological training about what this play means that is totally based on who's telling the story of what that of what that play is. And I think so much about our work at, at Classics is yes, creating. Um, access to the plays for the widest possible audience, but really centering blackness and centering black plays so that we can live from the frame of our own experience and, and let that frame kind of begin to alter the larger cultural consciousness because I feel like and and you know the other the others can attest to this as well we have done we do so much um, research about what what this play meant at a certain time but it's like who told us who who told us what that play meant and how did they tell us so when I went to you know when I when I was in college and was kind of in a, in a space that was majority white the way that they're telling the story to me about X Y or Z play is very different than what the actual story might be so in some places I feel like so much of our work is in in, in in certain sense, kind of like course correction, but it's also really about reframing the story of the theatrical experience so that we can sit inside of it in the right, in, in, in the appropriate way. And then whoever comes to see that has to come empathetically, um, as we all do, as we all enter into any, into any kind of artistic space and, ha and have that experience. So there's the, I think the word reframing is coming to mind and centering. Arminda, I know that you came across Alice Childress in your professional work. 
and had the feeling of being surprised, possibly academically robbed, <laughs> that you hadn't <laughs> gained the knowledge of her earlier in life. What has been your experience now having spent, I know many professional years studying her work, bringing it to, to other environments, to schools, to theaters, and so on? I think there's just, there's a great satisfaction. I mean, I, I remember when we walked in, when we, one of the earliest meetings that we all had as I was just like, I just want Alice Childress everywhere. I want, I want a year where Alice Childress is actually everywhere and on everybody's lips. And I feel like through no real actions of my own that just the universe was ready for that. And now every time I turn around, Alice Childress name is dropping and I feel a deep sense of satisfaction. I feel like, A, that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> Brittany is talking about, at one point, Awoye is talking about reframing and, and Brittany likes the word reclaiming, reclamations, right? And it's narrative building, right? I, I remember being in, in college and taking the theater history class and the last place scheduled was Lorraine Hansberry and we got carried up on something else a week too long. So we never got to Lorraine Hansberry. So it was like, <laughs> and it was a major, and I had a major meltdown over it to my, to my professor who was very sad and cried real tears and thinking that that's actually the, the problem is not that we miss Lorraine Hansberry. The problem is that's the only place she knew where to start, right? That, 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 that's her jump off point. And so you have to, you know, and, and, and I would say that grad school was not particularly better. Um, so to, to come into just discovering not your history, but the history of theater, theater history, American theater history, and then to be able to help people to get that history is that is the thing that's that's really satisfying the argument for inclusion it's that you don't actually know the story if you don't have if you if you don't know these stories you don't know your own story either as americans and, and you know as artists as as theater artists you don't know your own story if you don't know these stories that's kind of how i feel about it at this point when there are many more Black playwrights who are celebrated, successful, living playwrights today, and you're now working with universities and talking to them about their curriculum, talking to theaters about producing more plays. Is it symbiotic to promote historical playwrights not who are not living, who were writing decades ago, at the same time as promoting uh, Anna Devere Smith and Lynn Nottage? Do those go together? Does one help the other? Does one eclipse the other? If a university says, well, we're going to do Susan Laurie Park, so we might not be able to do Alice Childress. Not that that's a legitimate answer, but are you finding that when you speak with universities, does, does their interest maybe in talking about Jeremy O'Harris right now help them get to Alice Childress? What does that conversation look like now that there are so many celebrated living, working Black playwrights? I think for, for me, it's, it actually needs to be reversed a little bit, right? That Alice Childress and understanding her work is going to get you to Jeremy O'Harris, right? That like, if you tell me 
you want to do Susan Laurie Parks, but you don't have space for Adrienne Kennedy, you actually never had space for Susan Laurie Parks in the first place. That um, I, I think that for me, at least as a, as a director specifically, reading these older plays makes newer plays it situates them in a different way, right? It makes it so that these playwrights, and, and we talk about this all the time in, in, in sort of our conversations, it makes it so these new playwrights aren't just coming out of nowhere. That actually there is a, you are a part of a longstanding tradition. And even if you were not 100% aware of that tradition, it's in you, <laughs> right? That like the, the work you are doing is not alone. That like, just in the same way a white playwright can pull on Tennessee Williams or Arthur Miller, right? You can pull on Childress, you can pull on Kennedy, you can pull on both, right? Like the list goes on. But like for me, if you're not starting with Childress, you're not getting anywhere. And that like this play is actually going to help you understand Fairview better. This play is actually going to help you understand what Alicia Harris is doing structurally and what to send up when it goes down, right? That there are clues latent in these plays that you need to read to understand better. And I think that also like goes back to your earlier question of like being a good audience member. This is Brittany here. I think in, in theater education, and again, I'm going to speak from a, an actor who's been to grad school, so that's my perspective. There are two things that are in play. There's teaching about the fundamentals of theater, and you learn about uh, the masters of those crafts. And then when doing productions, yes, there is also the newness factor. Uh, what are the new plays that just happened that people are excited about that you can do? But the new plays are always going to be cycled out very quickly. The fundamentals always stay. So you're never, it's never a period of time where it's like, I guess this year we'll just learn about Shakespeare and then we'll touch on it again in 10 years. No, you're learning about Shakespeare and Chekhov and Williams every single year while the new plays will come in and out. So I think exactly what Dominique was just saying, understanding that it is fundamental people like Childress or Kennedy and they deserve as much respect and notice as do uh, a Chekhov or an O'Neill. I'll just, I'll just add um, very briefly, I think that part of this too is acknowledging and recognizing the deep centuries, millennia old tradition of Black theater making and then taking that understanding and then in a, in a way applying the rules that you know we've we've all learned um history we've all learned um we've all learned theater history and it's like the same it, it, you it's like you wouldn't teach only annie baker without teaching also sophocles and uh, without teaching everything else along the way so and there's some way there are some places that i'm like oh what are the new rules? What are the new ways that we can create in order to kind of create pathways for these plays? And there's some ways in which it's kind of like, you know how to do this. You've been, we've been, we've been, we've been doing this. You've been, you've been teaching history. So use those same rules, make an assumption of the same greatness and wealth of the history, and then take it and build from there. And, and it's not just a one-to-one -one correlation of like one black playwright to another black playwright. Mm -hmm. They are influenced by by everyone. Like I'm like thinking, I love film, right? And so if you want to learn about Tarantino, you're not just looking at the other American filmmakers. You have to look at Kurosawa. You have to look at Japan because that was is influenced. And in that same way, there have been there has been a long legacy of black artists who have influenced not only black artists but artists of other cultures as well. And I think it's important to recognize it's not like a side conversation or a, or a 
you know, a, a detour. It is on our path, on our American theatrical tradition. That's great. This is amazing stuff. <laughs> this is um, specifically for Brittany, but anyone else, um, please jump in. How does your work with classics overlap and intersect with existing Black theaters and Black theater festivals? And I wanted just to draw um, a line towards home base, which Brittany, can you tell us more about that and how that weaves into the work with classics? Well, I don't think I would have done classics if, or been in the right headspace to be a part of this if it hadn't been for home base. First of all, away, and I wouldn't have even met. Maybe we would have met at some other thing because we were destined to meet, but it might not have been at that exact time. How Homebase came about was I was uh, in grad school at Juilliard and I was finishing up my second year and I had come in to the program a little later. So I had graduated from undergrad and I had about two to three years out in between where I had been working a little bit regionally and had started to kind of figure out what I, I like, the kind of work that I want to work on, have a little more agency within myself as well. And I got to grad school and preface this by saying, like, I had a great time. Like, I am so happy that I went there. But all of these educational institutions are seeped in traditions that have predominantly excluded any experience that is not um, heteronormative and white. And so there were parts that I felt like my education, I was not being fully realized. There were, there were holes in it, basically going back to that conversation that AJ just had. And I met with some other grad school artists at different schools that I had become friends with and people of, of color were having this experience across the board. So myself and some friends at NYU, we got together and we formed a theater collective. And the whole idea of it was to say, okay, we feel like in our training, we're, we're getting a lot in, in the Shakespeare's and the Chekhov's and O'Neill and such, but we really are missing a black theater perspective. We're missing uh, getting to tell our stories. So we brought in and had asked around for um, alum from both of our schools who were playwrights and directors who were working and asked them if they would mind creating one acts for us. And we put it on in festivals and it's still going on. I mean, I guess with, we'll see <laughs> with uh, this pandemic, but it has been happening since then. So it's been four, four years or so. And every year, those two schools get together, and now Columbia is also included in that. And alum or people working will get together, and they'll meet all of these artists, and they will create work for them, and then the work will go up, and it's predominantly for people at the schools, the professors, and their, their students who are white to be able to see their classmates in a different way, but it's also for people in the industry to come. And I think what that did for me was realize, first of all, the importance of uh, creating your own path. And when you do see that there is a hole filling it, um, the importance of community and ensemble. Uh, I still, I think my be best collaborations artistically were it with that. And I never even performed. It was bringing people together. But the people that I met with that are people that I still continue to collaborate with. And I think it helped me come out and, and join the industry feeling a lot more sure-footed. I didn't feel like I was going to have to say yes to every project. I could create projects if that was uh, necessary with people that I admired. And it also made me want to learn more about the history because we, were we would talk about that. We would talk about the traditions that we were not aware of or things that we wanted to explore more. AJ came on as, as a dramaturg during the second uh, year of that. 
and the playwrights were exploring so many ideas and it made me want to learn more about what they were influenced by. Aoi and I met kind of during that time period. I think it was me coming out of fourth year and someone at NYU had connected us saying that we should meet and classics was continuing in that vein of just really understanding the importance of history, um, particularly black theater history and how attached it is to everything that is happening in the present moment and the future. Are there any other thoughts about collaborating and weaving in with existing black theater festivals? This is Dominique. I can just say I work at the um, National Black Theater. I'm their director in residence right now. And I think a big thing for me is like just having a place, <laughs> just having a place where oftentimes like these plays were done, where like the, sometimes the families of like the playwrights we're talking about or like act like actors who are a part of like that original company and just being able to actively see the legacy inside of an institution and to like track it and to be able to like have the re the necessary resources to reach out and to can and to like really connect those moments together is really important to me and just like being able to like say like i want to do this play that was done like in the 80s do you know anybody and it's like oh yeah here's her daughter you can just talk to her right is really that sort of thing is really cool and is a thing that feels super super doable sometimes only in black institutions I, this is Brittany. I will just also say that, that there was an event that we threw during home base during my last year. We were about to have the 50th anniversary of Juilliard. And we had found that there were a lot of Black actors who had graduated who had felt uncomfortable there or not seen in that space and didn't want to come back for the huge anniversary. And so we, as the Black uh, actors that were there, we really felt like we wanted to know about the legacy that we had come from at that school, because a lot of us had picked Juilliard because of these people that had come before us. You know, there's Viola and Keith David and, and it goes and Stephen McKinley and goes on and on. And so we, we created this three day event and they came, a lot of them came back and they taught classes or they sat on set seminars. And we made a point, uh, myself and Denise Woods, who helped with that, who was in group eight, of saying, let's really honor the, the men that were in group one. There were three black men who were in the first group at Juilliard, only one actually graduated. But there were three of them and they had kind of been lost to history. No one really talked about them at school. And we all recognize that they that those are the shoulders that we stand on. If they hadn't done that and taken that shot, uh, who knows if there would have been a lot of people afterwards who would have. So we did this little celebratory thing. And Stephen McKinley Henderson was one of those people. And he said, you know, one of the most honorable things that you can do for somebody is to honor them while they are still alive. And that really like stuck with me of like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. You, like to celebrate someone with their life and, and be able to say those words to their faces and say, this is how much you have meant to all of us and to have, you know, people come and have testimonies. And so in that way, I think I've always felt that there's an importance of honoring also a lot of these people. And unfortunately, a lot of them have passed, so we can't honor them in their lives, but we can at least call attention to them now. And we are doing that with minstrelsy and just seeing all of the incredible artists that deserve to be honored for the remarkable work that they have done for all of us. Brittany, that's so beautiful. And I just, I just wanted to add to that, you know, I think that we, we are, we're, we're building on a tradition of, um, 
also of, of company making and company company building. And there are so many incredible artists who have created different companies before us. And I would be remiss not to mention the incredible, phenomenal, transformational work of Woody King and the new Federal Theater here. Because even at the beginning, when Classics was just kind of an idea, I went to visit Woody in, in his office and I left his office with a stack of plays. He was like, oh, you should read this one. Oh, and how about this one and this one? So just kind of having that, um, the, the brilliant kind of memory and just legacy that that he and so many others have, have built, it's really extraordinary because I feel something that we talk about a lot is that sometimes it's very easy for people to feel like they're kind of starting anew, you know? Oh, I want to learn about classic plays. Where, where, do, where do I start? Where do I go? And there's so many other people who have done this work before us. So part of our work too is honoring the legacy of the work that has come before us so that we can continue to build with the extraordinary tools that, that have been and that have been handed to us. That's really beautiful. And it's very evident from hearing your words today that that sense of gratitude is so much a part of your mission and seems to propel the work that you do going forward. I wanted to ask a bit about directing revivals because when we're talking about classics, usually we're talking about an original production that had a great impact, or perhaps a subsequent production that felt definitive to critics or to audiences. And so when a director is going to take on a play that's been done either once to great effect or many times with varying degrees of success, and maybe one was a standout, there has to be, um, there's always the, the thought in the director's mind, well, am I doing this now and why am I doing this now? And you, you always see like in the promotional marketing, like this is the time more than ever that we need this play. And sometimes that stuff gets a little trite. Um, but I want to ask you from a sincere perspective, when the director says, I want to do this play, is the idea, this is a subjective, so just talk to me from your own perspective, is the idea, I genuinely want to direct this play. Or is there a stronger element of, I think that my vision into this play will give this generation a specifically meaningful viewpoint onto this play. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because A Raisin in the Sun was done on Broadway 10 years apart by the same director. And without going into that too much, I want to ask you, what goes into that thought of, do I do this revival right now? I'm going to answer this, and then I cannot wait to toss it off to Dominique as well. And almost basically all of us are directors as well, so I'm, I'm really excited to hear how people answer this question. The first thing that's coming to mind to me is a play that I read that's called The Forbidden City by Bill Gunn. And I am not an emotional person and I could weep right now thinking about this play. It is so extraordinary and so luminous and the things that it can show us about family, about hardship, about loss, about grief, about wonder, about fantasy, is so exquisite. And I feel like no person on this earth should continue through their life without having the experience of this play. When I read The Forbidden City, I was like, 
where has this play been all of my entire life? Where has this experience been my, my, my entire life? Why has, this play been, why has this play been hidden? And this is a play that its last performance was at the public theater in 1999. It's, it's, it's not, it, it wasn't done in my living room and, no, and nobody saw it and got to experience it. Like, why have we been deprived of the majesty of this play? So that's the, the when I think of how to answer that question, I think that's why we go in and hopefully to direct any play because it's speaking so deeply to our souls and is offering a possibility for, for teaching, for learning, for healing, for, for humor, for entertainment, for whatever those things is and, and, and getting to think about how do we share that with more people. Yeah, that was, that was, that's a great question. That was a great answer. I think for me, I'm always trying to answer a question. Uh, like as an artist, that's sort of like the, the the thing I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out why Black people die in ways that other people don't, right? And so for me, when it comes to plays, I'm always like, how does does this thing work to like work to name the thing I'm trying to get at. I'm thinking about trouble in mind because I'm always thinking about trouble in mind. I'll never be able to stop thinking about trouble in mind. Shout out to Arminda Thomas for that. Right. But like, how is that play about theater, but also about a plantation? Right. And, and how are we doing the work of like naming that naming the fact that like rehearsal rooms with white directors function as plantations. Right. And so for me, what it is, is actually Black people are still dying. They've been dying since we were forced to be brought into this country. I need to continue illuminating that and reminding you about that and screaming at you about that and galvanizing you until you're like, oh, wow, you know, like there, there's like, there's this like problem that some people are experiencing that everyone isn't. And though, and, and for me, the, the classical canon of Black plays is doing that and it's doing it then and it's doing it now because time isn't linear, right? Like Alice Childress currently is writing Trouble in Mind, right? And I am able to do it currently, right? That our that Alice Childress is at once an ancestor, but is also a contemporary. That if her play isn't being done when she's writing it, well, goddamn, it needs to be getting done now. What am I doing, <laughs> right? And so for me, that is sort of like the, the push of these plays because I don't ever want to be working on a play where I'm just like, oh, well, that was a nice check. But like, actually, how, are, how am I, as her contemporary, saying you should be paying attention to her right now, and at the same time saying, people who were alive when she was writing, you should be paying attention to her then. It's like, it's a double-edged sort of temporal goal that I have. Thank you so much. Arminda and AJ, do you have thoughts on this question? Well, I'm not going to have a Woye and Dominique thoughts on this question. <laughs> I will say that um, I go into pieces for different reasons. I may go in because I'm interested in, I do a lot of work with New, with New Perspectives Theater and their On Her Shoulders series. And so sometimes it's, we haven't looked at this person. I haven't looked at Pauline Hopkins. What does this mean? I have noticed though that whether it is a conscious choice or or just kind of sideways choice that by the end of the of the experience like something in me has fundamentally changed this year 
I did a, a trio of plays by you, Laylee Spence, and I thought, okay, we'll do some comedy. That'll be nice. We'll do some comedy based in Harlem. It'll be, you know, in one play that's not so much comedy. And it'll be, it'll be cool. It'll be snazzy. It'll be jazzy. It'll be okay. And it changed me. It changed the way I thought about what writers were doing in the 20s. It changed the way I thought about Harlem in the 20s, the way I thought about the way people actually relate to each other and the things we tell each other and the ways we hide from each other and marriage and negotiations and relationships and and what happens when we fail them. I mean, it really did. It, 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 it's not, I just, I lost my mind. They, my, my cohorts here will laugh because they know that for a minute, all I could do was talk about you lately. Spence. It just was like, I had to take like a five second break from Alice Childress to talk about you Spence. It, was, it was deep. So, I mean, I, I think that what I live for is the encounter. The encounter with the writer, whether as a director or a dramaturg, the the opportunity to really dive in to the specifics of that person's life and thinking and words and um, and the world that they were trying to create or articulate or discover and that's just and and then to come out and and that is the thing that I live for just that encounter. Uh, I have to say that it was through Arminda, you know, that I got the opportunity to to read Eulalie Spence's work, and, and I too was changed um, after reading it and seeing the um, the presentation that Arminda directed. I think the word revival is a loaded question because there are some plays in the Black Theater Canada that never get revived, and then we, and then on the other hand, there are plays from the the Western European canon that that never stop getting revived, like that are being revived twenty four seven around the clock. And, and and just working with the classics team and getting exposed and getting, um, being exposed to these plays that were written throughout the 20th century, many of those playwrights are, are not necessarily contemporaries and and their voice is still relevant. What they said, you know, 80 years ago, is still relevant now in in, in the 21st century. But we just need to be able to have the opportunity to to see these plays being produced. You know, just period. And and I'll leave you with this. Just Tune into the to the to the podcast when the classic podcast drops because uh, as as Armenda's life was changed, you know, um, through Eulalie through Eulalie Spence, I think everybody's lives is going to be changed after they after they experience the the, the first uh, classic podcast. I can't wait for it. AJ is low key our advance agent, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I think these are just such beautiful um, reflections, and I just feel I just feel really just just. Yeah, thank, I mean, thankful to you, Lonnie, but just also really grateful for this, this exceptional group of people and minds. And, you know, we can have these beautiful conversations all day. So I'm, I'm enjoying this. Thank you all so much for these amazing insights. Um, I'm really just excited to learn from you, to see what you produce, to listen to the podcast. And um, to see how many theater spaces, universities, and audience members just open their eyes wider and take in everything you have to, to give. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lonnie. Thank you, Lonnie. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.